Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, in the above entitled action, upon our oaths, do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is Episode 10, State of Tennessee versus Centoya Denise Brown. In August 2004, Brown shot 43-year-old Johnny Michael Allen in the back of the head as he slept. She then took his wallet, his pants, paperwork, guns, and his truck. After dropping the guns off at the in-town suites where she was staying with her 24-year-old boyfriend, Gary McLaughlin, a.k.a. Cutthroat, Brown abandoned the truck at a Walmart and hitched a ride back to the motel. A tip led police to Brown, who eventually confessed, but claimed that she killed Alan, Johnny in self-defense. We'll talk about the evidence that refuted her claim, her trial, conviction, sentence, direct appeal, and state and federal post-conviction process. Then we'll talk about the propaganda campaign that led to the 2019 grant of clemency which shortened Brown's life sentence to 15 years. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I mean, I certainly was interested, uh, definitely through hearing the intro, I can tell what angle you're going to go at from this. But I'm definitely interested in some of this. I mean, it's certainly interesting to me some of the points that she brings up. Um, one of the points that I, you know, don't think we're going to get to, but she made a statement uh, after being released saying that uh, sentencing a sentencing a minor to 51 years. Um, let me see here. Two, 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 two. Sentencing a minor to 51 years is basically, you know, a little bit harsh, considered too harsh. Um, I tell you, I look at that and I would, don't we have laws in this country to prevent something that long? If she, if she we, tried as an adult or a minor? She was tried as an adult, and we'll talk about that. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that during the program. Okay. Uh, I also want to. I, I also want to give okay. listeners a quick couple of program notes. First program note: Episode ten was supposed to be State of Texas versus Lester Bauer, but because we postponed last week, Michael and I recorded that episode on Saturday, May fifteenth, mm-hmm. and it will be uploaded and aired on June first. Uh, the day after Memorial Day, the Tuesday after Memorial Day. Um, we just wanted to keep moving with the schedule rather than pushing things back. Uh, right. So exactly. Lester Bauer will be aired on June 1st. It's going to be a recorded episode. Uh, the other program note is we may be moving clear and convincing to Sundays. And we would be live, correct, Michael? Yes. we uh, Like I said, we can either do it live or we can do it in a taped format and re-upload on Tuesdays. But if you're happy with live, you know me, I'm happy with live. Okay. So we may be doing that. I've had a couple of hard weeks at work and been a little bit stressed with work that has made show prep for me a little challenging. So... Um, I'm going to consider that, and then we will definitely post a announcement on Facebook if that is what we're going to decide to do, even just for the time being. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and definitely, as far as that Bauer episode, I think that's one of our better episodes. I can't wait for our listeners to hear that episode, because I think that's one of our better episodes we've done. It was, uh, yeah, we we did do a great job on that one. Um, yes, absolutely. All right. So, yeah, de- we we definitely are. All right. Well, let's talk about Centoya Denise. She was born Centoya Denise Mitchell, and okay. her mother was a uh, a teenager, underage woman. Uh, I think she was. <laughs> 15 or 16, she had a drug problem, she had an alcohol problem, and she continued using drugs and alcohol during her pregnancy. Now, I think Centoya was born in the 1980s. While we're talking, maybe you can get us a birth date for Centoya. She also, Centoya's... January 29th, 88. Okay, 1988. All right, so she's a year old. She's a year younger than my nephew. Um, okay. Her first couple of years were in probably an unstable and chaotic environment. However, a lot of children are born into and grow up in unstable and chaotic environments. Now she's not the only one. Yes. I apologize. I just wanted to address something because I don't see it on the outline. Um, we did uh-huh. talk about the mother's alcoholism. Now, I don't see this on the um, outline when it comes to the trial, but uh, apparently her attorneys claim that she developed fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Was that ever proven? No, and that comes in during her post-conviction. We'll talk about that during okay. post-conviction. Okay. 
Uh, and there, tonight's outline. Uh, I'm. I don't mean to say. Uh, I don't mean to do it to kind of sandbag you, or I'm not right. doing it to sandbag you. But I just was in such a hurry. Oh no! That I've got stuff in my head that's not on that page. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I can certainly understand that. Uh, and I think at about the age of two. Centoya was given up for adoption. She was in the foster care system. At some point, she made false allegations against a foster parent or foster father or an adoptive father, which she then, re- that, which she then recanted. Um, mm-hmm. So Centoya was troubled. Right. I see she uh, had multiple problems with uh, the juvenile court system. And, Correct, uh, and she she started using drugs at the age of thirteen. Oh wow! So it's no surprise so, that she ended up in this. Uh, assuming that she did, ended up in this uh, trafficking ring. Well, no, and that's the thing. I want to get into that too later because that's not right. what it was. Basically, right. she she lived in Clarksville. Gary uh-huh. McLaughlin cutthroat lived is from Murfreesboro, which is outside of Nashville. Centoria right. ran away from her adoptive home in Clarksville and went to Nashville. She either right. ran Not away enough. because she had met cutthroat and was madly in love with him. He was 24. So this is a 16-year-old girl with a 24-year-old man, and this will come into play for me a little bit later as well. Uh, but she ran right. away, probably against all advice. If if she was with him and her family knew about it, they probably told her to get away from him, leave him alone, make her leave, like make him leave her alone. I mean, they probably were at their wits' end. But she didn't well, listen, and she went with him to Nashville. One thing I will say, so um, if this is true, think it leads credence to the possibility that she may not, she may not have been a part of a trafficking organization, but she definitely. She was like not, she but was no, no, trafficked. and that's the thing, Michael. You're you're jumping too far ahead right now. Okay, mm-hmm. that was the claim that they made in 2018, 2019. I'm trying Wait. to go through what was known in 2004, and trafficking had nothing to do with it. Right. She went off, she was 16 years old, she was with a 24-year-old man, she thought she knew better than everybody in her life, and she went with him. And there were, they were suspects in other robberies, he was a suspect in other robberies, and I'll tell you right now, I believe Centoya was Bonnie to his Clyde. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, and there I mean, was like no, and, and I don't think that he even, he didn't force her to use drugs because she was already using drugs when she was 13 before she ever met him. Right, exactly. And he didn't force her to uh, prostitute herself. Well, and that's what I was about to say. I don't necessarily buy that she was trafficked as much as I think she was definitely involved in prostitution because it says that she lived in a hotel and, from what I yeah, but most of the, uh, I I know I know that the current 
the current mindset is, oh, she was 16, she was a baby, she couldn't make those decisions or choices. But you know what? In reality, yes, she could. I was about to say, and 16, she did. technically, as terrible as this is, 16 is the age of legal consent in most states nowadays. So, I mean, exactly. Sound, technically, she could make adult decisions for herself. Well, and it's not that she, you know, it's that she was bound and determined to make these decisions for herself and not listen to the adult advice that was given to her. Which right. would have probably warned her against it. So there has to be accountability. Right. Absolutely. And I I think to whatever extent that she may have been a victim, she was a victim because of her poor choices and her yeah. poor decision making. I could definitely see that. Okay. Um, now, let's talk about Johnny Michael Allen. He was born in Albemarle County, North Carolina. Or no, Stanley County, I'm sorry, North Carolina. Uh, he was uh, the only child of James and Carolyn Allen. Um, oh, he was born in Albemarle, Stanley County, North Carolina. He was born 28th of September, 1960. He was uh, served in the Army for a period of time. He ended up in Nashville, and he went into real estate and apparently was somewhat successful. He also was involved in some way with country music as a producer mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and perhaps as a, as a writer, occasionally writer. Um, mm-hmm. He was a Christian youth minister, and according to all his friends and family members, he was not a person who hired prostitutes. And he had a regular girlfriend. Right. Just based on now, what I'm reading about him here, it definitely sounds odd that, you know, he He's a Sunday school teacher, has a homeless ministry. It definitely sounds odd that he's in this situation. Well, you got to remember, though. Let's remember, the person alive telling the story is the person who pulled the trigger. Yeah, absolutely. So they have an interest in making their victim look as tainted as they can. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with him. I'm just saying it sounds like he found himself in a predicament that I wouldn't have expected somebody with those credentials to have found themselves in. I'm not saying anything but wrong with him, I'm sure. more likely than not, he was in that predicament because Centoya led him to believe that she was a person in need of help. Okay. Okay, I see your point. You don't think he was hiring her as a prostitute. You think he No, I don't. And and I'll get into that I'll get into that in a few minutes. Um so the evening of August sixth or late afternoon of August sixth, apparently Cutthroat sent Centoya out to earn some money. Um whether it was by prostitution or as Bonnie to Cutthroat's Clyde, who knows? Right. Because some of the statements that Centoya made to other people give the impression that they were planning some type of robbery 
mm-hmm. and there the gun that was used to kill Johnny Michael Allen was also used in a robbery that paralyzed a young woman mm-hmm. at around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Centoya was walking along a road in Nashville and a white pickup truck with Johnny Michael Allen pulls up. He asks her if she needs help if she's living on the streets. She gets in the truck. He offers her a ride. She gets in the truck. Uh, either he asks her if she's hungry or she tells him she's hungry. And they now, go to Sonic where he buys her food. This is a real monster, now, y'all. He fed her Sonic. Now, now maybe he bought her a chicken sandwich and she wanted a a coney. Right. Now, I do want to ask you, though, according to a detective, so this is coming from the police's perspective, Alan asked her if she was hungry and if she was, quote-unquote, up for any action. That is not – but, again, that's based on what Centoya told them. Okay, so that's not the That's not based on – that's not based on an independent witness hearing – a conversation between Johnny and Centoya. Because okay. it's my understanding when that truck pulled up, Centoya was the only one there. Well, and the reason why I brought it up is because it did say according to a detective on the case. So that's why I that's why I wanted to but know. That's, you know he's facing that on what Centoya told him. Right. Anyway, okay. so he buys her he buys her a chicken sandwich, some fries and, and a and a, a soft drink. Uh, maybe she wanted a burger, maybe she wanted a hot dog, and he just ordered her a chicken sandwich, and maybe that's why he needed killing in Satoya's mind. Right. Uh, they went back to Johnny's house, which this was a prostitute being picked up for sex. They would go to a motel. <laughs> Especially not a seasoned prostitute. I'm pretty sure they won't go back to somebody's house. I will agree there. He he would he would not want to go to his house with a prostitute that he's picking up and paying for sex. Yeah, I'm um, pretty sure a seasoned prostitute wouldn't want to go back to his house. No, you a prostitute I mean? who goes back to a John's house is not a very smart prostitute and has an expiration yeah, date exactly. on her because the John yeah, can exactly. do whatever he wants once he gets you in, in his house. Um, exactly. At least that's what I've heard. So they right. go back to Johnny's house. They eat in the kitchen, uh-huh. uh, apparently watch a movie. Police found the guest room made up. Now, if Johnny believes she was hungry and homeless, his friends think that it would not have been out of character for him to bring her to the house to give her a place to shower, change clothes, and sleep in a bed. Not necessarily. Right, absolutely. Um, absolutely. No money changed hands between Johnny and Centoya. Right. She claims she was going to charge him two hundred, but I'm thinking two hundred or one hundred and fifty dollars in Nashville for a sixteen-year-old prostitute. True. In two thousand four, um, I think the going rate was probably about twenty. She also says that she never get engaged in sexual intercourse. And um, they did not have sex. So 
that kind of tells me that this wasn't about sex for him. And that he had no predatory... And this is the thing. This tells me he had no predatory intent toward her. Yeah, the guest room being paid up definitely strikes me. Um, That's certainly something that speaks to me that he didn't intend to have sex with her. Why would he put her in the guest room? And again, the the problem, part of the problem is, and this is the this is the big part of the problem. People should, when when we're talking about the person who committed the murder, everything that person says should be taken with a grain of salt, and everything that person says should be doubted. The veracity should be doubted. Because that person is crafting the story that makes them look better and is trying to make their victim look bad. And that's what she's doing. So so there is one thing I want to ask you right now, and then remind me when we get to the trial that there's another thing I want to ask you about. But the first thing thing I want to ask you about right now, lead prosecutor Jeff Burke stipulated that Alan picked Brown up to pay her for sex, stating, quote-unquote, that was a fact from start to finish. How do you feel about that? I, in, basically, he kind of had his hands tied. If a waitress or somebody at Sonic could have come forward and said no, he never talked about sex. And one of the problems was two witnesses came forward and claimed, one claimed that, that Alan sexually assaulted her. Uh, he was never charged. She never reported Damn you, it. I was saving that for trial. I, that was my trial uh, question. I'm but, so I, I think it's, it's, I think that the prosecutor said it. I don't necessarily think that he should have. Had I been his patient, okay. I would not have said it in that way. I would have said she claims and I can't refute that claim, but there are facts that make me doubt that that is the truth. <laughs> okay. So you brought so, up the whole um, situation that I wanted to say for trial. So I will ask you, does it bear anything to you that the waitresses uh, testified saying that he would hit on teens regularly? Does that bear anything on your mindset? Wait, what? You broke you up. up. I couldn't understand you. Oh, I apologize. You brought up the waitresses, the people that testified in court. That's what I was going to say. Well, okay. But one, one of the women testified that he sexually assaulted her. I don't think she was a waitress, though. I think she had okay. some acquaintance with him. She ended up going to his church. They went out on a date. They went back to his house. Uh-huh. She claims he sexually okay. assaulted her, but she never reported it and just wanted to get on with her life. Okay. This is a then there was a waitress, a teenage waitress, but the teenage waitress said he would hit on her. He would tell her yeah. she was beautiful. Uh-huh. He would ask her out. She never went out with him. And so she, she actually wasn't able to testify. She what? She said she did. She said she did. If she okay. said other people did, uh, she can't speak for other people. Okay. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, that's what I wanted to bring up. I wanted to bring yeah. that up because, you know, that kind of did stand out to me. But, you know, you made a good point. You made a good point. You can't, number one, speak for other people. And number two, you absolutely cannot, uh, you absolutely cannot, you know, use that at 100%. Uh, use that 100%. Now, um, definitely, I, I, I'm done with my interruptions because I want to get into the crime because the next question I have is actually one that points towards guilt for me. So go ahead. I apologize. That's okay. So uh, sometime very late on August 6th or perhaps very early on August 7th, uh, a single bullet was fired into the back of Johnny's head. It exited mm-hmm. in the front in his fa- from his front of his head. It went through mm-hmm. a wall and landed on the guest bedroom or landed okay. on the bed, I think, in the guest bedroom. Uh, he was... Either naked or wearing underwear and no shirt. He was lying partially on his right side. His hands were under the pillow as though he was asleep. Okay. Yeah, that that right there um, that right there tells me I don't think he was uh just he was post coital. I'm just saying that. Um one thing I do want to say that was her gun that she used, correct? The forty caliber? It was a gun she claimed to have bought off the street, but it was mm-hmm. uh there was evidence that it was given to her by Cutthroat. Okay. So it wasn't one. I think she claimed to have gotten it off the street. I think she was trying to negate and and we have to we have to remember she had that gun in her purse when she left the motel. Right. Okay. So um, that is an element of premeditation. It's not like she was unarmed and went to this house and got into a situation and grabbed his gun and shot him with it. No, she had the gun. And frankly, what I believe happened, what I believe happened is she was in the guest room. She wanted to rob him. Uh It was 1 o'clock in the morning. She went into the bedroom with a gun. She shot him in the back of the head. And then she took his wallet, pants. She took guns. She took paperwork. She took his keys. She got in his truck, and she drove away. Now, if you don't mind... And I think that's what happened. I want a devil's advocate you saying that that was pretty mad. I, I agree. But one thing I would ask, though, is... In her line of work, is it pre-med or is it protection? Because in her line of work, even though we all know it's illegal, what have you, it's pretty common that they have weapons on them. Am I not? I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. But not a not a forty cal not a forty caliber pistol. Okay. Okay. A forty so caliber pistol is a, a pretty substantial weapon. Right. Yeah, because I think she and Cutthroat, I think, personally, I can't prove it, they were never charged, but I think she and Cutthroat were out robbing people. That's how they made their money. Occasionally, she would turn a trick. Okay. So you don't even think she's like a full-time prostitute. You think that that's more in the robbing there? No. Yeah. And I think when she did... 
I don't think anybody was forcing her to. Okay. You know, I think she looked at, I'm an empowered woman, and and I do what I want with my body. Because that was kind of the mindset in 2004. And that's definitely the mindset of a 16-year-old who runs away from home to live with a 24-year-old man who calls himself cutthroat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's... It's all this is all my opinion. I can't prove any of it, but right. Her story and the later stories don't add up. Um right. So after Satoya murders Johnny in his bed, mm-hmm. probably while he was asleep, so he probably right. never knew what hit him. Uh she mm-hmm. dropped guns that she stole which she intended Uh to pawn at the hotel and Cutthroat probably is like, you dumb bitch, what'd you bring his truck here for? So she took the truck and dropped it off, abandoned it in a Walmart parking lot. Luckily, she appeared on camera when she did it. So, Um, real quick, apparently... Real quick, I want to say something. Um, Yeah. Everything else makes sense in my mind for, okay, I can I can reason in my mind taking the truck. That's a getaway. I can reason in my mind even, I can reason in my mind almost the wallet even. But what I can't reason in my mind in a self-defense plea is the guns. I don't, I can't reason that in my mind. Why would you take the guns if you're fleeing for your, if you're scared for your life? Yeah, it, and she also took gun. she also took paperwork that apparently dealt with the ownership of some property, either the house where you know Johnny's house or another property that he owned. More likely than not, with the intent of converting that property to her own. Mm-hmm. Um. When she got back to the motel, she hitched a ride with somebody in the Walmart parking lot. When she got back to the motel, she dropped the keys to the truck in Richard Reed's vehicle. Uh, A guy by the name of Richard Reed, which she knew from a juvenile facility in Clarksville, uh, threw a broken back window in the back of the vehicle. And then later that day, that morning, and this is in the wee hours of the morning. This is probably after two, between two and three. Later that day, she asked Reed to take her back to the truck in the Walmart parking lot. She apparently Mm -hmm. tried to start it, but it wouldn't start. Uh, Reed didn't have jumper cables. And so then she asked Reed to take her back to Johnny's house so she can get more stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Because nobody's found the body yet. Okay. Uh, during that trip, she leaves paperwork that she had stolen regarding the property or a property in Reed's vehicle and okay. made admissions of the murder to Reed and Sam Humphrey and not, I had to kill him in self-defense, but I shot him in the back of the head Right. and I took his stuff um, and I'm going to make a lot of money from it. Right. Pardon? Yeah. 
Um, she also threatened Reed to keep his mouth shut. Pardon? According to the quote, it says she shot somebody in the head last night and blew his brains out, and that she considered it a fat lick, and that uh, she was waiting on a lick like that all week is what she said. Yeah, and lick is a street term for robbery. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then she apparently used Johnny's cell phone to call 911 and report a murder at his at the address of his house. Uh, basically, she called. She said, you need to get to this address. And when they asked what it was about, she said murder and hung up. And they determined that that came from Johnny's cell phone. The police arrive at Johnny's house. They find, you know, the evidence that they're going to find. Uh, at some point, uh, Sam Humphrey, who was Reed's roommate at the motel, uh, he worked at Pizza mm-hmm. Hut. He gave a statement that linked Brown to Johnny's murder. I think they so, had, you know, heard these statements from her, saw the news, and said, "Okay." Uh, and and I have to really, you know, I have to really. He and Reed each cooperated with police from the get-go. Right. So, Lisa, um, one thing I've got to say on this is it goes back and forth for me. So her calling the police and hanging up, that that screams like it could potentially be, you know, something where, okay, somebody who did it in self-defense would do that. But there, it's like it's back and forth. She does things that makes me think she did it on purpose, but then she does things that make me go, well, if she was – a cold-blooded killer, why would she call the police and report it? Um, yeah, but you got to uh, remember, it's been it's been almost 24 hours. Right, true. Um, uh, she did. I and her, missed, her, I did wanna... go ahead. Her, her, person, her personality disorders, maybe she wanted attention her maybe wanted her to go back to the house and and get more stuff and she either couldn't find a way back or didn't want to do it and so she got the police involved to give herself an excuse not to have to go back and take any more shit that's what i was thinking was personalities or something um one thing i did want to point out you mentioned uh i believe that she made that threat to uh brown um, her words to read. Were, you better, to read, excuse me, yes. Uh, you better stop running your fucking mouth about my business or I'll get you too, is what the detective said she said to him. Correct. Correct. Uh, and, and in but, her statements to Humphrey and Reed, she never said it was in self-defense. Not okay. once. Yeah. Uh, yeah, according to the detective, all it was was... Uh, and you can't see me, but I'm air quoting a fat lick. So according yeah. to what the detective is hearing from Brown and Reed, she never did. She always told them it was a robbery straight up. She was waiting for yeah. a robbery yeah. like this. So you're right. Yeah. I just definitely now, understand that part. So on, on August 8th, by August 8th, the trail has led to uh, Centoya Brown at the motel. The police uh-huh. arrive, cut or cutthroat opens the door. 
they immediately take him into custody. Uh, she immediately protects him. She says he wasn't involved. He had nothing to do with this. Now, I don't see so, that on here. Now, on why, would, why would she be doing that if he's the one forcing her to do all these things that she doesn't want to do? I agree. I agree. That's very interesting to me. If you can get me if, where I can see that, I'd like to see that. Uh, I don't have that listed here. I just see the actual, uh, the actual arrest. That's definitely interesting, and that speaks to me. Why do you protect? Okay, so I understand there's a little bit of proxy, uh, Munchausen by proxy possibly, but not that much that you're if you're if you're so scared of this cutthroat guy, you're going to be running to the police when they show up. And oh my God, I know you're here for me, but guess what? This dude, you know, in my mind, yeah. Well, and no, I mean, not even she could have sat back silently and let them arrest him. Let them arrest him and throw right, it out. But she actively interfered. But she actively interceded and said he had nothing to do with it and exonerated him from the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. She was brought to the police station. Initially, she lied and said she was 19, and her name was Santoya Denise Mitchell. Mm-hmm. But I guess because of her criminal record, her fingerprints uh, let them know that she was 16 years old and Santoya Denise Brown. Um, she eventually so gave a statement the, to police. Is that where the criminal Pardon? impersonation came in? Is that where the criminal impersonation charge came from? It Given may have. Name? Yeah. Okay. It 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 more likely was the given the wrong name, not necessarily the wrong age. Um, and she was arrested. At some point, she attempted to put point the finger at Reed and Humphrey based on the paperwork planted in Reed's vehicle, but that did not pan out for her. Um, at some point early in the process, she was sent to Western Mental Health Institute for evaluation. Mm-hmm. On August 15th or August 14th, while she was there, she asked a woman, a nurse named Kathy Franz, to use the phone to call her mother. Kathy Uh Franz, because places like that have rules, and apparently it wasn't time for anybody to use the phones. Uh, Kathy Franz said, no, you can't use the phone right now. Um, Centoya launched across the counter, attacked Kathy Franz, they struggled, and Satoya threatened to shoot Kathy Franz and listen to her blood spatter on the wall. She basically said, I'm not going to shoot you once in the back of the head like I did him. I'm going to shoot you and listen to your blood spatter on the wall. Uh, not a statement that would suggest that this killing was done in self-defense and that Centoya had a lick of remorse about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Santoya made statements to fellow inmates when she was transferred to the jail. Uh, sometimes she tried to give the self-defense story, but they other prisoners didn't buy that one. And eventually okay. she said that everything was true except that she didn't shoot him in self-defense and she wasn't scared. 
or she wasn't mm-hmm. nervous or uncomfortable. Uh, in so, a recorded phone call to her mother, she says she executed the guy. She was heard laughing, even on a phone call made immediately after her arrest while she was still in the police station. She was laughing so much, the person she was talking to thought she was joking and asked for confirmation that she'd really been arrested for first-degree murder. Uh, In all this time, she never once implicated cutthroat. Okay. And she also never said anything about cutthroat forcing her to use drugs or forcing her to prostitute herself. Right. Uh, She was eventually indicted for first-degree premeditated murder, felony murder, and aggravated robbery. Right. Um, At trial, the prosecution was basically her statement and all of the facts and evidence that refuted self-defense. The position, just the position of Johnny's body, totally refuted self-defense. There was no other weapon present in the room. He was lying in the bed with his hands laced under the pillow. Exactly. Forensics noted that post-mortem Allen was lying with his hands underneath his head and his fingers interlocked. So, yeah. Brown, well, I guess I'll wait to say that until we get to the defense. I apologize. Okay. So, um, another thing is that there was uh, the gunshot residue on the pillow and some of the stippling mm-hmm. around the entrance wound suggested that the gunshot was at very close range. Which doesn't It surprise. was not... You know, it was it was not uh, he pulled the gun and she shot first from a distance. So she got up close and personal and executed him, which is what she told right. her mother. Uh, the right. defense really, they challenged the admission of the statement to police on different grounds. They... Um, cross-examined all the witnesses and tried to poke holes in the state's case as much as they could. Uh, but there really wasn't a lot that they could do So because her thing, statement right? was, you know, the, the best evidence against her. Plus, all of her so, statements to other prisoners and her mother and Kathy Franz, you know, did not help. So, Lisa, here's my thing on the defense. Brown stated that Allen had intimidated her by repeatedly standing over her and touching her while she lay in his bed. Okay, that's possible. Just bear with me. And that she believed Allen was reaching for a firearm as the two lay in bed. This led her to shoot Allen with her own firearm, which she had gotten from her pimp for protection. Prosecutors took the sense that Brown had not been in danger and that she was murdered that she had murdered Alan as he slept naked in bed in order to rob him. Lisa, here's my thing. There is no way in my mind that Alan is reaching for a weapon or touching her or anything, and then in the process of her shooting him, while he's dead, he is able to interlock his fingers behind his head underneath a pillow. 
That's right. not possible. Right. Exactly. And that's that's why the self defense claim didn't work because her account is totally refuted. First of all, it's refuted by the fact there wasn't a weapon under the bed. Right. And she never said there was a gun under the bed and I took it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and the fact that he was laying with his fingers in a lace, he couldn't have been reaching for anything under the bed. I'm not, and I'm not sure whether the position of his body was facing the inside of the bed or the outside of the bed. Right. You know, and, uh, but, to um, to, no, the position, the, the position of his ahead. body in and of itself refuted her claim of self-defense. Plus the, the close wound, the close gunshot wound refutes her claim of self-defense. Well, I don't know about the close gunshot one, because if they're laying in bed together, obviously the shot's going to come from close. But um, I will say that absolutely the positioning of the body absolutely refutes it. Um, I yeah. do see what you were talking about earlier. It says uh, that a 17-year-old girl uh, did say that she went on a date with him, that he kissed her or something, and... Uh, when she told Alan she did not want to have sex, she claimed that Alan then proceeded to rape her. It doesn't say anything more about it. Was that like – I, that I don't her? know, but I, Michael, what was that girl's mm-hmm. name? It what was that girl's name? Okay. It, it this is the problem. This is the problem with some of these resources like Wikipedia. There uh-huh. was a woman – I don't know I don't know how old she was, but I think she was over eighteen. Uh-huh. Named Leggett. L I G G E T T. Okay. She is the one who claims that Johnny sexually assaulted her after right. a date. Right. She went and to I his church. Actually, I the seventeen year old let me fin- let me finish, please. The seventeen-year-old waitress never went out with Johnny. She always told him, "No, I'm not interested." Right. I have misread. That one was my fault. So, uh, I what a lot of these resources do, and they're not even really resources. They take the story, they turn it into hyperbole. And then it gets accepted as fact. Well, and actually, according to this, as far as the 17-year-old goes, which, like I said, I just mixed the two stories accidentally. As far as the 17-year-old goes, it, apparently it wasn't even as egregious as what you had said. This one says that he just wrote a message on a business card, and that was it. Yeah. That there wasn't, like, multiple he, Well, he asked her. He did ask her out, but she said no. And, right. and he didn't. He didn't wait out. Relevant. He didn't wait outside the restaurant and, you know, kidnap her and bring her to his house and sexually <laughs> assault her. She right. took no for an right. answer. Um, so, and as far I as the woman, the other woman, uh-huh. I think that basically what happened was, uh, although her account is different, 
I think that what happened was that it was a situation of her not saying no in a forceful, uh-huh. unequivocal manner and right. leading him to believe that she didn't really mean no. We talked right. about this when that no, woman I'm... came out about a, a CSAN sorry. You know, she says he put uh-huh. his fingers or he put his fingers in my mouth twice. I'm like, okay, honey, mm-hmm. the first time I would have taken mm-hmm. them out and said, look, don't do that again or you'll regret it. Right. And then the second time I would have bitten his finger hard right. and said, I told you not to do that again. And if the dumbass did it a third time, I would have done my best to bite the fingers off. I do want to ask so, you, because I've never seen this happen before, and you had kind of mentioned it. And I didn't really understand what you were talking about. On the 17-year-old, the judge did not allow the jury to hear her testimony as saying it was irrelevant. So did he hear her testimony pre-trial and then say, no, you're not worthy or you're not worth the the jury hearing this isn't the story worth the jury hearing? Well, they're more likely than not the – admissibility of her testimony as well as admissibility of some of the state's testimony was dealt with at a preliminary hearing. Uh And after hearing the testimony, that's when the judge decided that her testimony was not admissible. The defense believed it to be admissible because it corroborated Satoya's statement to a degree because the girl was under 18 and it corroborated the other woman's testimony in their minds because he was somewhat persistent in his pursuit of the young woman. But the judge found because the woman never went out with him and so nothing ever happened, it was not relevant. Bingo. That's what I wanted to know. Because that's why I was like, well, I can kind of see the point, how each story interlocks, but now I see your point. Bingo. I got you yeah. there. Yeah. So um, now one of the one of the things that they, they did, her defense attorneys did evaluate her to see if there was any mental, emotional basis either right. as a defense or to reduce her culpability. Centoria Brown tested out at at a higher IQ than the average bear. And um, so that didn't work. And while they found that she had borderline personality, she was evaluated by a psychologist and tested. She had borderline, borderline personality disorder, which actually is not a is not a diagnosis that you want to put in front of a jury as a defendant because it's the kind okay. of diagnosis that says, yeah, she she this is entirely within her, her character and personality to do this thing. Because borderlines, remember, like Jodi Arias, they have high highs mm-hmm. and low lows. They are intense relationships. And drama, drama, drama all day. But when you you displease them, they are cold as ice. 
Mm-hmm. So, so I completely, I can completely see your point um, as far as that goes. But my question is, if they were looking at this borderline personality and all of this. Why did they stick with the self-defense tactic rather than going ahead and going, hey, you know what? Maybe she had some mental issues. Um, she has this personality disorder. Why didn't they go that route when self-defense really was the again? Route? Okay, a borderline personality disorder is not a disorder that you want to put in front of a jury as a defendant. It's a disorder that the prosecution would love to put in front of a defendant and put in front of a jury. Also, if they're going to put a mental defense forward Mm -hmm. of any kind, then the state is going to have an opportunity to have its own expert examine her. And that expert might find borderline personality disorder or something even more detrimental to her moral culpability. Okay. For well, I mean, the crime. Well, I mean, why I asked that in this case is because she never denied killing him. She just says that it wasn't her fault. So, I mean, if she right. not denied killing him, say, okay, yeah, she definitely killed him, but it was because she's fucking insane. Well, it's not insane. I, I, we've, we've talked about this many, many, many times before, Michael. A personality disorder is not a mental disease or defect. She de- a personality disorder doesn't make you hear voices. No, there is no such thing as multiple personality disorder. Okay. Okay. Uh, I it, thought it no longer exists. It's dissociative identity disorder, and I think they even doubt that that is even a legitimate. Okay. You know, okay. The, because. So that's why there are so few that. cases of it. Um, no, but a personality disorder is not a mental illness. And, and, and okay. basically, from a legal standpoint, she would have to have a mental disease or defect that led her to have an in- inability to appreciate her, the wrongfulness of her conduct, which she doesn't. Because kind of like she is a statement... Let let me finish. She gives a mm-hmm. statement that makes it sound like she had to do this in self-defense. Okay. So she knows what she did was wrong. Right. Okay. I see your point now. I'm tracking now. But if it was in self-defense, she's not as culpable. Right, right. And, I mean, no, Wanda Jean Allen, because Wanda Jean Jean Allen had killed one person and gone to prison for a few years and gotten out of prison and then got into a relationship, and that didn't work, and so she did it again and killed a second woman. And remember, we talked about this. They were in an altercation in front of a police station. Wanda went back to the car and got a gun. And then... Cold-bloodedly shot the woman. Is that what you were explaining? What they were trying with the defense to present to get her her clemency is that the same thing that we were talking about there? 
I don't recall. I think what they were no. I think what they were trying to present. Um, I I don't recall specifically with Wanda Jean Allen. I think they were doing. Um, they were definitely doing low intelligence. Yes, yes, and I think they said that her cognitive function in the frontal lobe for her reasoning was messed up. Correct. So that's why Uh, they said that she didn't understand what she did was wrong or whatever. Right, but it has to be an ongoing mental issue that, and it has to be diagnosed, you know, at the time. Diagnosing it 20 years later doesn't really, you know, never really work. Um, It it has to be something that, that or that could have been diagnosed because it existed. Right, right. Um, So they, you know, they basically, they tried to prove their self-defense claim. They, they challenged and tested the prosecution's case. But in the end, the jury believed that Santoya Brown was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of first-degree premeditated murder, felony murder, and especially aggravated robbery. Right. Uh, The court did merge the murder counts into one. And... Uh-huh. There is no mandatory life without parole. Mm-hmm. With first degree premeditated murder, it's either lot. It well, she wasn't eligible for death because she was 16, and that had already been foreclosed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Tennessee for first degree murder, it's either life without parole or life. The state has to file a notice informing the defendant that they are seeking life without parole, they don't do that, which they didn't do in this case, then it's it's life. In Tennessee, okay. a life sentence, you have to serve between 51 and 60 years okay. in order to be eligible for parole. This is first-degree premeditated murder. It is the highest most heinous murder count in any state. Uh-huh. It's with premeditation. You know, it's murder with premeditation. It's murder uh, of an especially vulnerable victim. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a very serious crime. Mm-hmm. And so Satoya Brown was sentenced to life. Now, we'll very quickly, and and we'll talk about it a little bit more later, the Supreme Court has never said you can't sentence a juvenile to life. Okay. What it said is, if your murder charge carries a mandatory life without parole sentence, you cannot subject a juvenile to that. Mm-hmm. And you and I have looked at other cases of juveniles, Adnan Syed and the kids, the two boys in right. Idaho that killed their friend Cassie. Um, right. They weren't sentenced under a mandatory life without parole. 
I don't believe either one, either of them got life without parole. They got life sentences, okay. which in their particular states mean they have to serve a significant block of time before they would be eligible for release. Uh-huh. Um, between you and me, whether it is a an 18-year-old or a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old, if they are going to commit a first-degree premeditated murder mm-hmm. in order to rob someone or rape someone, if they are going to kill a child or an elderly person for the heck of it, and one person, Satoya said, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill somebody. Um, then I think that 51 years in prison is not an unequitable sentence. Right. Because you still have your life. You still have a chance. You might be elderly, but you still have a chance of getting back into the free world. Mm-hmm. Johnny Michael Allen did not get that chance. Right. His life ended at 43. So, let, okay, let's say you serve every year of that he got to live. And when you get to 43 years in prison, we'll let you out. I don't think it's unfair. I don't think it's inequitable. Because at right. the at the and what we forget a lot of times in this pro vic, pro killer victim killers are victim mentality society that we've become, we forget these people took away a life of a person who did not deserve right. to be killed. Johnny Michael Allen didn't deserve to be killed because everything, my opinion after everything that I've read, he was trying to help this girl. And if she hadn't been such an evil, horrible bitch, she might have been able to leave Nashville, get back to Clarksville, and go back to her family. Uh-huh. And go back to school. And you know what's what's ironic? While Centoya was in prison, she apparently got a couple of college degrees. Right. Which, had she not committed this murder but stayed with Cutthroat, probably would not have happened. First of all, Cutthroat was murdered in March of 2005. Right by some some other dude, I don't know who, uh, I didn't get his name, but he was murdered. Um, so, I, you know, like I, I don't think that that is an unfair uh, sentence, and it certainly wasn't a violation because that Supreme Court case had already come out by the time Satoya Brown was sentenced. And that's more likely mm-hmm. than not why the state did not elect to go after life without parole. Mm-hmm. And you can sentence a juvenile life without parole. You just can't do it as a mandatory sentence. If they held a sentencing mm-hmm. hearing and the victim's family testified and, uh, you know, the, the juvenile's 
criminal record was put before the court, and then the juvenile put on evidence and mitigation, and then the court determined that he still deserved a life sentence without the possibility of parole, that could be done. I think that's what the two kids in Idaho got. I believe so. You know, because, but it wasn't done as a mandatory sentence. It was done after a sentencing hearing where all of the evidence was put on in aggravation and mitigation. So, uh, mm-hmm. Antonio's direct appeal went to the Tennessee Court of Criminal Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, she challenged the admissibility of her statement to police, arguing that her waiver wasn't knowing and voluntary. Uh, I think she tried to argue that statements made to her by the officers uh, render her her waiver involuntary, and that did not that did not fly. She also uh, alleged some type of coercion that never was quite clear to me as I read it and obviously wasn't very clear to the Court of Appeal because they found that she hadn't proven that. She also challenged Mm -hmm. the admissibility of the state's evidence, which consisted of her statements and writings. Uh, Her statement to Kathy Franz and Sheila Campbell regarding her threat to kill Franz and her threat to kill Franz the way she killed the victim or worse. Uh, There was a handwritten new personality profile taken from the defendant's motel room, which was apparently generated around the time of Johnny's murder. The testimony of Shayla Bryant uh, while the two were in Davidson County Jail regarding the various statements Toya had made about the murder and then the recorded call with the uh, her adoptive mother in which she said she executed the victim. Uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals basically denied relief on all of the issues raised except they found that she had been convicted of a specially aggravated robbery, which was not charged. And so they reversed the especially aggravated robbery conviction, rendered an aggravated robbery conviction, and remanded to the state court, the trial court, to resentence her, which the state trial court sentenced her to eight years on the aggravated robbery uh, concurrent with her life sentence. Mm-hmm. So she served her robbery conviction, you know, her robbery sentence in the first eight years of her incarceration. Uh, Her state post-conviction, for the first time in state post-conviction, she raised the claim of uh, the fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, And there was another kind of related disorder, uh, AR something D, which I never found exactly what that was when I was reading the opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, um, while, okay, look, I was born in 1964. My mother smoked and drank her entire pregnancy with me. Right. My sister was born in 65. Same thing. 
although my mother might have been watching her alcohol intake. And then I think my youngest sister, she may have not had alcohol, but she did still smoke. Right. So, um, while the argument was made based on certain features that Centoya Brown had fetal alcohol syndrome, what it comes down to is that she, this all existed at the time of her prior to her trial. Right. This was known because this was 2004. And I've been hearing about fetal alcohol syndrome since, the 1970s, fetal alcohol in the 70s that led to OBGYN saying you can't drink at all while you're pregnant. Um, and also a lot of the, a lot of the quote evidence that they used to support fetal alcohol, not necessarily during state post-conviction, but definitely during federal post-conviction. Um, was inconsistent with the evidence, the mental health evidence developed prior to trial. Santoya mm-hmm. uh, was actually a high IQ individual. Like Jesse Miss Kelly, apparently every year that she was incarcerated, she got dumber. Right. And so by the time she'd been in prison for 50 you know, 15 years, her IQ was 72. And, of course, now that she's out, I'm sure she's back to, you know, near genius. Her IQ was tested, I think the the testing after her arrest was 120, which is not bad for a 16-year-old. I mean, when I was 16, my high school required an IQ test. My IQ was 120. Right. So, um, you know, she she wasn't low intelligence. Um, also, I think it's a problem, and this may have been a problem encountered by the defense attorneys. Sometimes, and especially in a case like this, um, it doesn't help if it doesn't help your client to say they have a temper and can't control themselves. Right. By the way, according to this, um, according to this, you mentioned earlier about the degree. She got a liberal arts degree uh, with a 4.0 in December 2015 from Lipscomb and a Bachelor uh-huh. of Professional Studies in Organizational Leadership with a 4.0 from Lipscomb. Uh, one was while she yeah. was incarcerated, one was afterwards. I just wanted to right. point that out because you were talking about her mental faculties right. again. And, you know, that is not consistent with what they claimed in court as far as her intellectual capabilities. Because to support fetal alcohol uh, spectrum disorder, they did claim that she was um, mentally slow. Right. But, you know, again, uh, one of the issues that they raised that had some promise. Apparently there was a juvenile hearing to decide whether to transfer 
the murder charge to adult court. And at that Uh hearing, Santoya testified. And at that hearing, there was apparently a a slight dust-up between Santoya and the prosecutor. Okay. So when they were preparing for trial, Santoya's counsel said, "Uh, I don't think you should testify because if you testify inconsistently with your earlier testimony in this hearing, they can use that against you which was legally not correct. Uh, I don't quite understand why that testimony at that juvenile proceeding would not have been admissible against her if she were to testify and consistently do it at trial. But um, that apparently under Tennessee law is not the case. Um, And that one had a little bit of promise, but they basically found that it wasn't ineffective assistance um, and that there were other good reasons that counsel was able to articulate to not put her on the stand, being one of them being is she lost control or lost her temper toward the prosecutors at cross-examination, it was going to look bad for her. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they they did not find that her her claim in that regard was had any merit, um, and they challenged the defense on you know not presenting the fetal alcohol, um, not presenting the petitioner's sexual, emotional, and physical abuse. However, that all came about as a as a result of the rebranding of Centoya's history. And so right. instead of a, you know, 16-year-old who ran away to be with a 24-year-old guy and live in a motel with him in Nashville, mm-hmm. um, she was a poor little girl kidnapped from church and sold into sex slavery, which is not what happened. Um, you know, she made the choice. It, it, granted, she was 16, deciding to enter a life of prostitution. You know, maybe they can't really decide. But I don't know that he. I don't know that he pushed her into it. There's a there's a right. you know a gray area as to what was his. Involvement and what was her choice? Um, right. And you know, she claimed he made her use drugs, but she'd been using drugs since she was thirteen. And he was from Murfreesboro, so you know, it's not like he was somebody that was in her life at that time. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I and the courts did not find any of Satoya's claims to have any merit. Okay. Uh, One of the other claims that they raised was that she was actually innocent of first-degree murder because she didn't have the mental capacity to form the intent or mens rea to commit first-degree murder and robbery. Um, That one was... 
uh, very soundly rejected. You know, the, the, the fact that she shot the victim in the back of the head while he was sleeping, she took his belongings, she took his money, she took his vehicle, she took his guns, she intended to pawn the guns, she took those back to the motel and then went and dumped the truck in the parking lot, she tried to enlist someone else to go back to the house to get more stuff. All those things show she had the intent and she had the mens rea to form that intent. Right. Um, and then they raised issues regarding the reasonable doubt instruction, which was also which was also rejected by the uh, appellate courts. And some of the federal issues that she raised were actually rejected because she didn't raise them in state court. Um, okay. So, and I, I think she also tried to raise a quorum nobis claim in the appellate uh, process during her state post conviction, and that was rejected. Uh, and I think that was probably quorum nobis was probably the intent thing. Now, to get to the clemency claims, um, it, when you read a lot of the articles about Centoya Brown that came out in 2018, 2019. First of all, she was going for clemency from the state of Tennessee pardons and paroles and Governor Haslam because she had exhausted all her court uh, avenues for relief. Right. And her only, conviction and sentence had been found to be uh Without error, now, and the evidence was found to be sufficient. The Supreme Court, correct? With the what Supreme? The U.S. Supreme? No, she never went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, who was the one that knocked off the years and only gave her fifty-one? Oh, okay. No, when her federal oh, habeas back. claim. When her federal habeas claim was on appeal at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal, the Sixth uh-huh. Circuit Court of Appeal certified a question to the Tennessee Supreme Court because there was oh, some lack of clarity as to what a life sentence, what the minimum term was with a life sentence in Tennessee. Uh-huh. And so they certified the question to the Tennessee Supreme Court, which said it would be, in Satoya Brown's case, 51 years. Oh, uh, I, I right. apologize. I just remembered the Supreme Court. I didn't see the Tennessee. I apologize. Yeah. So that was um, – and that wasn't a win because 51 years, I mean, you know, well, she yeah. was not sure. happy about that. So they sure. went with clemency. Now, when you read the articles, first of all, they say she was a sex tra- trafficking victim because by 2018-2019, uh, 16-year-olds could not be prostitutes. If they were prostituting themselves, they had to be victims. Um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that because... Santoya Brown was not kidnapped on her way home from church 
put into a brothel and forced to service men with her movements curtailed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. Centoya Brown had freedom of movement with cutthroat the entire time she was in Nashville. And she was only in Nashville for a matter of months. Uh-huh. Um, it may have even been as few as a matter of weeks. Um, because it's not really clear when she ran away from Clarksville. Right. So her her situation, whatever it may have been, was not a long-term situation. Right. Um, and she is the one who left Clarksville of her own free will and came to Nashville, either with Cutthroat or on her own, and then hooking up with Cutthroat. We must remember, was 24 years old. So if she's a little 16-year-old girl, what the fuck is she doing with a 24-year-old man? Mm-hmm. True. So... And, yeah, you know, you got to wonder, did she tell Johnny that she was 19, the way she told police? She was 19. Good point. Um, the fact remains, there was no sex with Johnny. He did not force himself on her. They did not have sex. So... How would he deserve to be shot? And it incenses me that there are actually people out there who say he got what he deserved. Mm-hmm. Because she's 16 and he was 43. Well, did she lie and, and tell him she was 19? We don't know. Right. Because he's not here to tell us what happened in their encounter because she put a bullet in the back of his head while he was asleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some stories that say Johnny was her pimp, which is total false. Absolutely, totally false. And I don't think Cutthroat was her pimp because Cutthroat never went out with her that night. Mm Mm-hmm. Cutthroat didn't know anything about Johnny. And once again, if she was in a bad situation she didn't want to be in, Cutthroat wasn't with her that night. Why didn't she get on a bus and go back to Clarksville? Mm-hmm. Or get on a bus and go to Memphis? Good point. You know, I mean, she could have said, look, my boyfriend, he makes me go out and sleep with men. I don't want to do it. Help. And he would have put her on a bus. Um, And then there's finally the false narrative that Johnny was killed in self-defense, which is completely and utterly refuted by every shred of evidence, including 
the position of Johnny's body at the time that she shot him at close range in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. He was laying in bed asleep. And like I said, I don't think that she was meant to be sleeping in the bed with him. I think she was meant to be in the guest room bed. Hmm. Okay. And that it was 1 o'clock in the morning. She wanted to get out of there with his stuff. So she crept into the bedroom and shot him in the back of the head and then took everything she could think of to grab and got in his truck and left. Okay. So, um, there's a there's a sad some somewhat sad footnote to this story. Uh, James Walter Allen, Johnny's father, passed away on August 21st, 2004, two weeks after his son was murdered. Uh, Johnny's mother Carolyn went on and lived until 2016 and then she also passed away Uh, Uh Toya Brown Governor Haslam granted her clemency and in a horrible oversight he set the date of her release for the anniversary of Johnny's murder, August 7th, 2019. Which okay. I think was cold. Um, of course, Johnny's family was not happy about that. Uh, Centuria Brown has in her clemency appearance before the the pardon and parole board, the hearing, she did take responsibility for her actions. Right. And she did demonstrate some remorse. However, she allowed the false narrative and has continued to allow the false narrative of a sex trafficking victim. To me, okay, to me, a sex trafficking victim is a woman who is either tricked by someone and put into a situation where she has absolutely no say and no control and constantly monitored and right. lives or dies so at the whim of someone else. A right. woman who uh, has a drug problem and decides to sell her body on the streets, who determines who she sleeps with, where she sleeps with them, how much she charges them, and what they do is not a sex trafficking, trafficking victim. Mm-hmm. Um, but even sometimes women end up in sex trafficking, you know, you, you, a woman visiting a foreign country and goes to a place of a part of town that people say stay away from. 
because she thinks nothing will happen and then something happens. I mean, we all make choices in life. Right. And sometimes we have to live with the consequences of our choices. And so, more and Lisa, more, people are not, that's not happening because their choices are being excused and they're being turned into victims. Lisa, I do want to ask you about the quote that uh, Haslam gave when he made the decision. He said, after careful consideration of what is a tragic and complex case, he made the decision. And he also stated that imposing a life sentence on a juvenile that would require her to serve at least 51 years before even being eligible for parole consideration is too harsh. What do you think about the governor's uh, statement on making this decision? I I wholeheartedly disagree. Mm-hmm. We are not talking about a drug charge. We are not talking about a burglary charge. We are not talking about a manslaughter charge. We're talking right. about a first-degree premeditated murder that happened during a robbery in which a sleeping right. victim was shot in the back of the head. Whether you're 18, whether you're 30, whether you're 16, to do that to another human being is deserving of at least 51 years in prison. And in reality... Another governor could have decided to release her after serving 25 years or 30 years. I mean, the thing is, 51 years was the minimum under state law. That's correct. But there was nothing that said she could not ever get out. Now, you know, I mean, in theory, if there was an an attempted escape and a guard was injured by other prisoners and Centoya protected that guard or saved that guard's life, they could have decided because she's now saved a life that balances out the life she took. Well, and to be fair... They might have decided to let her out then, you know. I do want to point out, and I don't know this for a fact, and, you know, I won't say this for a fact, but just based upon your statement during the clemency process of her her actions and the statement of how she acted as a prisoner, I will say this. I believe this situation, I don't want to say woke her up because I think that means that I think that she's, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but in essentially it woke her up, and I do believe that I will say that I think she's a changed person from the person she walked into prison. Well, I mean that's you know that's true, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute that she did to a degree mature, 
but once again, that doesn't mean she didn't commit she's crime. the one, I, you know, Centoya Brown had choices. Centoya Brown could have stayed in her, her adoptive home, which, as I understand it, was not the chaotic place that she was born into. Right. But Centoya thought Centoya knew better than anybody else. So Centoya right. was going to do what she wanted to do. She could have stayed in Clarksville and finished high school. Mm-hmm. And then gone on to college. And gotten married and had children and had a wonderful, beautiful life and never set foot inside a prison. But Centoya, that's not what that's not the choice she made. The choice she made was to run away and go to Nashville and live hand to mouth, hook up with a twenty four year old guy who was probably a criminal, uh, to rob people, to sometimes sell her body. And ultimately to shoot a man in the back of the head who was only trying to help her. And, you know, that's great. She matured wonderful. But she still committed the crime. I I still, and I I still think she should have spent at least another 10 years in prison. Wouldn't disagree. Um, Because this was not, uh, you know, this was not a 16-year-old driving drunk and, you know, killing someone. Accidentally killed somebody, right. And, you know, taking responsibility for her actions. I mean, even when she confessed, she made it sound like she had to do it because it was self-defense. And she told the story that made him look like he was hiring a prostitute. Right, exactly. So, um, I, I think she should have served at least 10 more years. And I don't think that she should have allowed people to turn her story into the false narrative that it has become. Because everything, all the facts, all the facts make it the total opposite of what legitimately happens to women who end up. Four books and movies come out, uh, done countless interviews. One thing I do want to ask you about, though, uh, before we do put a bow on this, I do want to get this in there. What do you think about her uh, foundation, the Foundation for Justice, Freedom, and Mercy, um, JFAM, um, that she started with her husband? Uh, I do notice that she has added kind of a uh, racial component to her problems that she said she experienced while going through the criminal justice system. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's total bullshit. Mhm. Um, you know, because the lead investigator who opposed 
her clemency, by the way, uh, Detective mm-hmm. Charles Robinson with the Nashville Police Department. Right. Uh, he's an African-American gentleman. Okay. So they weren't going after her because of her race. Right. And, I, you know, I'd love to see somebody argue that he targeted her because of her race when he's African-American himself. I mean, you know, he's kind of sort of. Right. Of course, they. I I just I I think it 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 had nothing to do with her race. You know, I right. it, I, I read in those opinions and in every opinion that I read, not a single opinion mentions her race in any way, shape, or form. Here's, here's where I am, Lisa. After going through all of this and, of course, seeing both sides, here's where I am. I think Santoya Brown killed him. I think Santoya Brown meant to kill him, I think Centoya Brown meant to rob him. I'm not 100% convinced, like you are, though, that this cutthroat guy, it was a mutually, I guess, I don't think it was a mutually beneficial relationship. I think that there was possibly pressures from this cutthroat gentleman. And... Um, Maybe she looked up to him as like a mentor or something from being from the street. One of the, I don't know. One of the things that makes it very difficult is, again, they weren't together that long. Right. It's entirely possible that he's, I mean, you know, men, y'all all do this. You seem great at first. And you seem madly in love with us, and we're madly in love with you. And then you turn into these giant dick assholes. And mm-hmm. we don't know what the fuck happened. Right. Uh, and it's entirely possible that, you know, he flashed a lot of money around, and she thought he was going to take care of her. And then once he had her living in that in the motel room with him, he was like, okay, now you're going to be paying the bills, baby. And, you know, it's entirely possible. But he didn't, he wasn't joined to her hip. He let her go out on her own with a 40 caliber revolver or a 40 caliber right. pistol as well. So, you know, I got to wonder. If he beat her, why didn't she get the forty caliber pistol and shoot him? Very true. And that's why I think that's why I'm thinking in my mind that maybe it was a mentor mentee situation and maybe Cutthroat was like, Hey, come on, girl, I'll show you the ropes. We'll survive together or something, you know? Not necessarily yeah. like a pimp, pimp not necessarily like a pimp and a a streetwalker relationship as much as a she looked up to him as a mentor type situation. And he may have taken advantage of her being 16 in that he was like, and well, shit, I don't have to get my hands dirty. I could just suggest to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Right. And that's, that's entirely possible. And more likely than not, he may have sent her out there to earn money, and it was up to her how she did it. Right. 
if she could rob somebody, she could rob them. If she couldn't find somebody to rob, she could turn a trick. Yeah, I mean, I would even go as far as to suggest that maybe he told her, hey, I don't care how you come home, just don't come home without money. Like, that's what I mean by maybe there was a little bit of pressure put in there, but I don't think that he ever, like you said, she had a forty caliber revolver. I don't think he was beating her ass. You know what I mean? Right. But, again, you know, you have to remember, it's a situation she put herself into. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, years, many, 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 many years ago, I was mm-hmm. very young and very stupid. And I was dating this guy who was 12 years older than I was. So, of course, he thought because he's 12 years older, he knows better all the time. And Mm -hmm. he was very fond of cocaine. Mm -hmm. But he didn't like to snort it. He liked to inject it. Mm -hmm. And he wanted me to try injecting cocaine. Mm -hmm. And my answer was always an unequivocal, hell no. (laughs) Right. And at one point, he got angry about that, and I was like, well, F you, and out the door. I went. Right. So then when he came crawling back, I told him, there's a line, and if you cross it again, that's going to be it. And he never brought it up again. But even though I was younger... I was raised by a strong woman who taught me not to be equivocal. Right. When I say no, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that I mean no. And Mm -hmm. cajoling is not going to cut it. Threatening me is definitely not going to cut it. It's only going to piss me off. Right. And... I don't care if people think I'm a bitch. It's like in Dolores Claiborne, sometimes a woman has to be a bitch. Right. You know, so... Well, I mean, um, I won't even buy into the fact that she couldn't have... I, I believe that she absolutely could have. I don't buy the narrative that she couldn't have done anything about it. I believe that she had her. she had her ability to be a... As we talked about earlier, a second ago, she could have been a bitch. She could have been like, hey, looky here, cutthroat little motherfucker. I'm not doing that shit. No, you know, I mean, in reality, in reality, could have left to go make some money and just never come back. Right, absolutely. Like I said, I think think it was... Not necessarily mutually beneficial. I think Cutthroat took advantage of her in that, you know, he used her to not get his hands dirty, but uh, but uh, he used a young, naive woman that he picked up and, hey, go do this for me. But I don't think she was completely against it either. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, but sometimes 16-year-old girls, especially in 2004, they were not young and naive. Right, that's true. You know, and and so 
you know, maybe she took advantage of him as much as he took advantage of her. Hmm. Because she really strikes me as as much a predator. as hmm. he might have been. Okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. It definitely takes a special kind of criminal to be able to put a gun to the back of somebody's skull and pull the trigger. Trust me. I will. I, right. I will, I, that point is not lost on me, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily believe that she... Like I said, I don't think she's not culpable, but I don't think she's I don't think she's uh Jody Arias, for example. I don't think she's this freaking asshole, terrible human being monster. Um I think that she's a sixteen year old kid who may have even been just trying to impress Cutthroat. I don't know. I uh, yeah. I don't know. I borderlines tend to be the center of the universe and right. others just revolve around them. Which mm-hmm. is what leads me to believe that as long as there was drama she was happy. Right. And maybe he you know, maybe he was borderline as much as she was. Right. Uh and borderlines often have intense Relationships, but they never last for very long. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, like I said, I, 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 she was never wrongfully convicted because she had the means, the mens rea to form intent. The crime she committed was most definitely sufficiently supported. By evidence, mm-hmm. um, you know she did because she did challenge the sufficiency of the evidence as well. But I mean, the crimes that she was convicted of were supported by the evidence, right? Beyond a doubt, or uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. and nothing presented during the post-conviction claims was ever sufficient to undermine confidence in the verdict when evaluated against the evidence that supported her conviction. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, like I said, I, I don't think, I think she maybe, I think one could say she was deserving of clemency at some point but not necessarily after only 15 years. Right. I don't think 15 years was an equitable uh, sentence. And I think it's also wrong for the clemency to come about with such a false narrative. Mm -hmm. Was designed to undermine her culpability. And that she allowed that false narrative to be out there. She should have corrected people and said, no, I was stupid. I ran away from home. I ended up with a 24-year-old man 
that I had no business being with. Because that's the thing. Right. She never acknowledges her choices. Right. That put her in that position in Nashville, whatever it may have been. Right. There were some, there, there were some, it was a fucked up situation that she was in, but she needs to acknowledge that she kind of put herself in that fucked up situation. I completely agree with what you're saying there. Yeah. And that's sometimes how it happens. But as, like I said, there was no quote unquote trafficking. Right. Um, if he was sending her out there to earn money and he wasn't with her, he wasn't forcing her to sell her body. Right. Um, that, you know, no. If if he was locking her in the hotel room and bringing men and making her sleep with them or service them there, yes, that's trafficking. But, no, if you're going out and you have a choice, rob somebody or or sell your body, if you, you know, if you choose sell your body, then, you know, that's your choice. Yeah. Whether you really want to do it or not, you know, I mean, I, I don't think anybody who... But there are women who feel that that's the only thing they're good at. That's the only thing they can do. Or for some, it's the easiest thing to do that gets them the most money. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, why they argue. And like I said, to me, there's a distinction. If you're trafficked, then you have no choice, no control, no say. And you can't get away from it if you want to, or no matter how much you want to. Whereas if you are deciding who, when, where, how much, and what, then it's a choice. Hmm. You're not being trafficked. And if somebody's not standing over you and taking the money and lining up the men, then you're not being forced. So, uh, and I think the the most horrible part is that Johnny Michael Allen's reputation and character have been so irretrievably blackened by these allegations. Right. And I think that's the biggest crime, Satoya Brown, because she started that ball rolling. Because a lot of that is based on her original narrative that she was using to try and get herself a lesser punishment. Mm-hmm. Because if you convince the cops that it was self-defense, they might not even charge you. If you convince a jury it was self-defense, they might not even convict you. Right. And so, so really, in reality, um, Centoya Brown today 
is still the same self-serving bitch that she was in 2004. She's just doing it uh, in a way that makes herself appear to be a victim instead of victimizing others. Right. So, and that is my final word. Okay. So, all right. Well, I will. I am thinking about Michael's idea regarding moving the shows to Sunday evenings. Um, probably would we be looking at eight o'clock still? Yeah, probably. Okay. Uh, probably at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Uh, I will make a decision and uh, we'll post about it on Facebook. If that is the case, our, our next episode may actually be this Sunday. Ooh. Okay. So, all right. Are you ready to put a bow on it? Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, May 25th, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for episode 11, State of Missouri versus Larry Griffin. Griffin's 1995 execution was controversial due to claims of his actual innocence. A 2005 investigation sponsored by the NAACP concluded that there were doubts about Griffin's guilt. A subsequent investigation by the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office reached a different conclusion. We'll talk about the evidence against Griffin, the post-execution investigation that raised doubts about his guilt, and the investigation conducted by the St. Louis authorities. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.